Um, we're starting a new series today. Uh, this series is on the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's going to take us nine weeks. It's going to take us through to um, our Christmas event. Um, and so hopefully just take us right to there and then we'll have our Christmas event and then we should launch um, soon after that. Okay. Um, I, I have no original title. I just called it uh, Nehemiah. Um, yeah. And this, um, let me just give you a bit of an intro to the book of Nehemiah in case you don't know too much about it. Uh, Nehemiah is 13 chapters. Uh, in the Hebrew uh, original, uh, it was combined with the book of Ezra, right? They were one book. Um, and if you kind of read Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back to back. They're like, um, I guess, two books or two uh, movies in a series, right? And so they kind of share a similar storyline, um, similar characters, right? Ezra will show up in Nehemiah. And uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we're just looking at Nehemiah for our series, uh, it covers a period of about 20 years. Um, this matters to you, around 445 to 423 BC. Um, but what I guess um, would help us is it, it's found right at the tail end of the Old Testament narrative. Um, this is, in fact, the last uh, glimpse we're going to have of God's people uh, before we close the Old Testament um, and then we kind of skip 400 years and then go to the New Testament, right? And so the next time we're going to see uh, the people of God is when Jesus Christ is born, right? Once you finish Nehemiah. Um, and so uh, that's just to understand where Nehemiah fits into the greater Bible storyline. Um, let me just check. Is, it, is everyone okay? Can everyone hear me? Okay. All right. Um, so if you've never heard of Nehemiah, um, it's a book that contains a guy named Nehemiah, but it's not ultimately about him. It's about God his faithfulness, uh, that he keeps promises, uh, his work to bring his people toward himself, to uh, bring them to repentance so that they might worship him, right? But in the story of Nehemiah, we see a whole bunch of people return to Jerusalem, right? So at the moment, they're not in Jerusalem. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, they build a wall. Uh, they surround themselves uh, around the word again, and then they repent. Um, and then they celebrate. And it seems like things are going well. But when you hit the last chapter of Nehemiah, as always, with people, uh, things go bad. And again, like most books in the Bible, it's reminding us uh, that despite our best efforts, we need Jesus, right? We need Jesus. And so today I want to talk about two things, and it's context and conviction, right? Context and conviction. So the first thing is uh, context. And context is really important, right? Context is the backdrop. It's the surrounding story. So we understand um, all the things that are assumed as we come into Nehemiah. And so context is important because if you think about it, uh, it helps us kind of really comprehend or um, not, not get anything wrong, right? For example, if you see this phrase, uh, move, uh, get out of the way, uh, that phrase, depending on the context, can either be a good thing or an appropriate thing, or it could be a, a rude thing or inappropriate thing. So for example, if a, if a child is uh, shouting this to his or her sibling because they're in front of the TV, Right? This is inappropriate. It's rude. Uh, on the other hand, if uh, a person is walking by near a construction site and something's falling and someone shouts out to them, move, get out of the way, well, that's a nice thing. That's a kind thing. Right? And so context kind of helps frame and helps us understand uh, really what's going on. Right? Another example is the word duck. Right? Depending on the context, that might mean you should you know, move your head because you're about to hit it on something, or it could mean 
there's an animal there, um, which is, you know, interesting, a duck, right? And so context, you know, is really important for us to um, properly understand what's going on. Without context, uh, we run the risk of uh, not only misunderstanding what's happening in Nehemiah, but to jump to the wrong conclusions and ultimately apply it to our lives in a wrong way, right? And that's what happens when we take verses out of context, right? We end up applying it in the wrong way. And so we're going to go to uh, Nehemiah verse 1, and we're going to answer the questions of who, where, and when, right? They're the context that we're going to look at, right? Who, where, and when. And immediately uh, we see who. Uh, from the get-go, we're int introduced to this guy, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it says. Nehemiah uh, is a Jew, right? He's an Israelite, a person who's, you know, in the chosen uh, people or nation of God in the Old Testament. He is a descendant of Abraham, right? All the way from Abraham down to Nehemiah. Um, he's an offspring of Abraham. And the words here say that uh, it's his words. Um, and most scholars would say that there are at least parts of Nehemiah, especially the ones that are in first person, uh, that are from him, uh, but that another author came along, compiled and expanded on what Nehemiah himself had written. Right? And that same author probably also wrote the book of Ezra, right? If that is interesting to you, right? And also we go on, we find the when and the where, right? He says, now it happened uh, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. And so when is it? He says, it's the month of Kislev in the 20th year. And so uh, that 20th year is actually referring to the 20th year uh, that Artaxerxes uh, has reigned. And Artaxerxes is a Persian king, right? And so that's gonna uh, matter to us in a moment. And where is he? He says he's in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa is actually uh, not in Jerusalem. Uh, it's not in the promised land. Uh, it's in Persia, right? It's the winter palace of the king of Persia. And that's where he's writing from. And so as we read this stuff, uh, we can notice that some things are out of place, right? We have a Jewish person who's not in Jerusalem. Uh, he's in uh, Susa. Uh, he's, I guess, dating his where uh, the date of uh, when to the calendar year of how long the Persian king has reigned. And so a Jewish Persian mixing up with the Persians, right? Well, what's going on here? And to understand this, I'm going to give you a full recap of the Bible, right? This is the major context of where we're at. So if you trace it all the way back, we're going to go back to Genesis 12, right? There's a guy named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he tells him um, that he's going to make his offspring plentiful. And basically, he makes a covenant with Abraham, you might know. Uh, he's going to, uh, from Abraham, uh, form his people. He's going to bring them to his place, right, the promised land. He's going to let them live out his purposes. He's going to bless them. And through them, they're going to bless the nations. And they're going to live in his presence, right? God's people, God's place, God's purpose, God's presence. Right? From Abraham, he begets Isaac. And then he begets Jacob. Or if you know Jacob, he had a lot of sons. He had 12 sons. And one of them was Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. A famine strikes, and you know, after a long story, his whole family comes to live with him in Egypt, right? Uh, Jacob and his 12 sons, or Jacob's other name is Israel. So Israel and his 12 sons. 400 years pass, roughly, and the 12 sons of Israel in 400 years become tribes. So now we have the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You might have heard that. And they're living in uh, Egypt, but this new Pharaoh sees them as a threat. 
And so he enslaves them. Now we introduce Moses and the story of the Exodus. We've got the 10 plagues, the Passover, the, the uh, passing through the Red Sea, wandering through the wilderness, right? That's the book of Exodus. We also get the law, right, from Moses, uh, from God. We get the sacrificial system, the priesthood, right, while they're wandering. And eventually, under the leadership of Joshua, the people of Israel finally enter into the promised land, right? This is the promise that he gave Abraham. Finally, they enter into it and they start defeating the enemies of God. We've got stories like the walls of Jericho here, right? And later on, we're going to skip judges. We have the kingship, right? We have King David, right? A man after God's own heart who's extraordinary, but also flawed, right? And a lot of pieces of what God had promised Abraham start to fall into place. We have God's people now gathered together in God's place, the promised land, are living out God's purposes, right? They're blessed and in a way that they're kind of a blessing. But what we need is God's presence, right? Now we go to King Solomon, right? Solomon is wise, he's wealthy and also flawed like all people, but he builds God's temple. And this is a place that God chooses to dwell. And suddenly all the boxes seem like they're ticked. God's people in God's place, living out his purposes with God's presence right in the temple. And they're like at the height of their prosperity. They're at the height of their fame. But immediately, it just kind of crashes and burns, right? Because mankind can't help uh, falling into sin and committing idolatry. And so if you keep reading the Bible, um, it, it goes horrible, right? The kingdom splits into two, right? The northern kingdom uh, keeps the name of Israel. The southern kingdom uh, is called Judah. Israel, uh, they go quickly into sin and further idolatry. And so God judges Israel, the northern kingdom, by sending the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians conquer and disperse the people in the northern kingdom. This is about 720 BC, if that matters to you. And the southern kingdom is a bit better. Uh, they got a mix of good and bad kings, but even they end up uh, going into idolatry as well. And so God sends now the Babylonians, right? The Babylonians are now the, the bigger power. They've overthrown the Assyrians. And so they come into uh, the kingdom of Judah. They ravage Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they break down the, the walls, and they take uh, the people captive into exile, right? They disperse them a whole bunch of different places, right? And so what, where we end up with is uh, the people of God uh, who seem to have entered into like heaven, right? The, it seemed like glorious. Um, they had their people in the place with the purpose and God's presence. But now uh, we get to a point where very quickly they lose it all. Right? They're no longer God's people. They're scattered. They're no longer in God's place. Right? They're gone into exile. They're no longer living God's purposes. They're not blessed. In fact, they're judged by God, and they're not in a position to bless anyone else. Right? They're not living in God's presence because you know, God has, in, in a sense, turned his back on them, and uh, the temple has been destroyed. Now, just as the Babylonian Empire overthrew the Assyrians, uh, per the Persian Empire comes along and they overthrow the Babylonians. Now, this is about 540 BC, 50 years since Judah is conquered. And the Persian king, his name is King Cyrus, he declares that all exiles can now go back home. All right, you see this in 2 Chronicles. We're not going to read it, but he talks about how you know, King Cyrus lets the exiles go back home. And so there's three waves of uh, the remnant, we call it, the, the remaining Israelites who go back to Jerusalem, um, you know, back to their homeland. The first wave is Zerubbabel, right? He leads the first wave. That's Ezra chapter 1 to 6. The second wave is led by Ezra. That's Ezra chapter 7 to 10. And they rebuild the temple. 
And the third wave is where we're at now, right? That's a long way to get to Nehemiah, right? The third wave led by Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, right? We've basically gone through all of the Old Testament just now, right? And we're right at the end of the Old Testament, like I said, right? We're at the end. And after the book of Nehemiah, we're going to go into New Testament after a 400-year break. Right? Before I move on to the second point, I just want to point out three things. Number one, right? Israel is at its lowest point in biblical history, right? I think you could argue that. Uh, what was once a very famous and envied kingdom, right? Especially under King Solomon, Queen Sheba would come to, you know, sit under the wisdom of Solomon. And they were very rich at that time. When you compare that to now, uh, the kingdom of Israel and Judah uh, scattered. Uh, the city is in ruins. They don't even, the temple has been rebuilt, but, you know, not really. Um, the walls are still destroyed. There are enemies surrounding them and inside of them. They're not strong. Um, and in fact, the most important part is uh, they're not sure about what their relationship with God is like, right? Because last time they saw God judged them and sent uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians um, to overthrow them. Right? The second thing I want to point out is uh, Nehemiah, this Jewish guy is in Susa, like I shared. He's in the Persian kingdom uh, because Israel has been exiled, right? That's why he's there. Now, in verse 11, uh, Nehemiah says he's a cupbearer to the king. Uh, he's the guy who tastes the wine to make sure it's not poisoned before the king drinks it. Uh, now, that might make, make uh, Nehemiah sound unimportant uh, because he's the guy that might die uh, if the wine is poisoned. Uh, but in fact, it's the opposite. Right? The, the wine taster or the cupbearer is a very important person. Uh, the king needs to be able to trust his cupbearer with his life, basically, um, because he needs to be certain that that guy is not going to put poison into the wine. But he's going to be certain that that guy is not going to be bought out for some money. And so uh, being a cupbearer is a honored and trusted position. It's, it's quite a high position. Right? That's where Nehemiah is. Again, Nehemiah is a Jew, but all of that history I told us, Right? He's, he's never experienced it. He didn't experience the, the, dis, the destroying of um, Israel or Judah. He was born as an exile. Right? Him, his father, Hakaliah, his grandfather, uh, most likely have never stepped into Jerusalem. Right? Only his great-grandparents -grand would have seen Jerusalem. He's kind of like a fourth-generation immigrant, very distant from Jerusalem. They didn't have photos back then, no Wikipedia. No Google, no Britannica Encyclopedia, right? We don't, we don't even have that. Um, like he, he, all he knows about Jerusalem is what's been told to him from generation to generation, right? And the third thing I want to point out is that even though things look really bad, uh, God is still faithful, right? And that's an underlying theme throughout the book of Nehemiah. Uh, when uh, God's people are faithless, uh, God is faithful, right? The fact that um, there is still a remnant left, right? There's still Israelites left. That's God being faithful. The fact that there are leaders like Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah that God's going to use, that's his faithfulness. Uh, the fact that King Cyrus is letting the exiles go back home, right? that's God's faithfulness. If you read Second Chronicles, they say that God is doing this. So that's just a, a broad context of the book of Nehemiah. And it's in that context we're going to find Nehemiah's conviction. Right? This, this situation Nehemiah finds himself in, uh, births in the heart of Nehemiah a conviction that is going to drive him to do um, you know, a, a great task for God. And ultimately, it's God doing the work. But again, he always uses people 
for his, his goals, right? If you look at the Bible. And uh, what I want to say is in our context, which is different from Nehemiah, uh, we too need to find our conviction uh, to live out the purposes of whatever God is doing here, right? That is God's call for us, right? We might be in a different position to Nehemiah, but God is still at work and God still wants us to live for him. Okay? So what is the conviction that he's going to lay on our hearts? And so let's jump into the second point. And I've only got two points today. We're going to jump into the story now. We're looking at Nehemiah's conviction. Right from the get-go, I said that we're introduced to this man, uh, Nehemiah. Um, but again, the book is about God, his wisdom, his glory, but he uses people. Right? And one of the people that he wants to use is this faithful man who's also a flawed man, like everyone in the Bible except Jesus, this guy named Nehemiah. And to Nehemiah's credit, he does a bunch of things well. Right? There's a reason why people uh, use the book of Nehemiah to talk about leadership. Or they use the book of Nehemiah to talk about, you know, let's build something. It's because he gets some stuff right, right? Those things aren't the main themes of the, of the book, by the way, uh, but they are um, kind of underlying secondary tertiary themes that we can see. And what I want to talk about in this second point is his conviction. Uh, Nehemiah, because of his conviction, is going to step out of his comfort zone. He's going to take risks. He's going to sacrifice in order to see the walls of Jerusalem built. Right? God is at work. And he's going to use Nehemiah because Nehemiah has conviction for the things of God. And so for us as Kingsway, God is doing something in Sydney. He's going to build his church. Right? Are we convicted to be used by God for the things of God? Right? When you look at the conviction that Nehemiah has, I just want to point out three things and then we'll close. Uh, Nehemiah had the conviction to think, right? To to think of the things of God, right? He was convicted so much of God that like kind of in the background of his mind, in, he's thinking about God. He's thinking about God's people. He's thinking about God's city, All right? We read verse one to two, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, the Hananiah, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. I said a while back, the questions that we ask reveal what matters to us, right? Because it's the questions we ask reveal, you know, what's on our mind. So I think the example I gave was if your child gets into a car accident and they call you, uh, what, what are you going to ask? If you ask, are you okay? Right? It reveals that you care about them because that's what's on your mind. But if you ask, is the car okay? But that reveals what you care about because that's what's on your mind. Or if you ask, was it your fault? Did you damage the other car? Right? Do I have to pay a lot of money? Right? That reveals what, what you care about because that's what's on your mind. Now, if you look at what uh, Nehemiah is asking, it reveals what he cares about. It reveals what's on his mind, what he's thinking about. And he asked these men of Judah about the Jews, he said, it says, who'd survived the exile. He asks concerning Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is asking about the Jewish people and Jerusalem. This is what he's been thinking about. This is what he's been mulling over. Now, how are God's people? How is God's city? And again, it's not so obvious that Nehemiah would ask these questions. Right? Number one, he's never been to Jerusalem. His father's never been to Jerusalem. His grandfather's never been to Jerusalem. He's a fourth generation immigrant. 
right? For most of us, um, we are second generation immigrants, right, from Korea. And even for us, we don't maybe love Korea or care about Korea as much as our parents. Imagine third generation, right? Some of our children, they care about Korea like very little. Imagine a fourth generation immigrant, right? They might not even have any thought to their homeland. Right? But Nehemiah does. Second, Nehemiah is comfortable. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's in a high honored position, trusted. He would have been fairly uh, secure, uh, prosperous, perhaps even powerful in some ways. There's no real reason for Nehemiah to care about the plight of those people over there, right, in Judah, because he's doing okay. Let me just care about myself and care about my well-being, right? I I think that's very um, likely for human beings. But Nehemiah uh, is so convicted about the things of God that he cares about those people all the way over there in a place he's never been to and about, you know, their struggle and their situation. Right? This is what conviction does. It makes us think about people that are not of ourselves, right? things that don't relate to us directly. Right? Nehemiah is convicted for God's glory. Nehemiah's conviction isn't just patriotism. It's not just caring about you know, his ethnicity or his people. Uh, it's not just to care about the architecture of Jerusalem, like, oh, you know, I love the buildings. They were nice buildings. The walls were pretty walls. It's not that. Really, at the underlying, uh, at the heart of Nehemiah is a care for God. He cares about God. Um, God's people, God's city, Jerusalem, the temple, the walls, they are all uh, related to God's glory right, and God's promises. And so when the opportunity arises, Nehemiah asks, because these things have been on his mind. You know, any great accomplishment um, from anyone uh, begins with a person caring enough to think about an issue or think about a topic deeply, right? to be consumed by it, to dream about it, talk about it, and ask questions. Right? That's where any great accomplishment begins, right? Here in our minds, a, a person uh, thinking over it, whether it's um, you know, Apple computers or you know, whether it's you know, um, you know, helping people um, find uh, water or, you know, feeding uh, those who don't have food, right? It all begins with a person consumed, right, by it in their thoughts. And when you think about great things being accomplished for God, it's the same. It takes a person or a people to care enough to think about it, right? to be convicted enough to think about it, even though they don't have to, right? when they're lying in bed. Or when they have spare time, when they're having conversations with friends, that they would be convicted enough to think, right, in their minds, and then to bring it up. And so my encouragement for us at Kingsway is to first be convicted enough of the things of God to think about Him, think about His people, think about His glory, think about His kingdom. You know, for us, it would relate to the church, because that is God's people today. Is the church growing? Is the church in Sydney, Australia, you know, thriving or dying? Right? And are we caring about those kinds of things? Right? Did you know that there are more churches closing down every year than there are churches opening up? Right? That's the state of the churches in Australia. But when I say that, does that matter to you? Right? Do you care about that? Do you care about um, you know, the people who are not in church right now, who used to be? Do you care about those who have never heard about Jesus, right? That should, um, you know, ideally in a perfect world, you know, keep us awake at night. 
You know, they say that there's about 25 million people in Australia and only 5% are in Bible-believing churches. 5% of Australians in Bible-believing churches. That's about 1.25 million in Bible-believing churches, leaving 23 million who aren't, right? I, I read that stat, right? Hopefully that's right. Right. I, I said a few weeks ago, I tried to figure out how many second gen Koreans there are in Sydney. There's about, and this might be totally wrong because it's my maths, but 38,000 second gen Koreans at least. Right? That's a lot of people. Right? Those kinds of things um, and whether they're saved and whether uh, they're in the kingdom and you know, God working, those things should be convicting to us. Right? That's where we begin, right? thinking about those kinds of things. Right? But we can't just stay there. We need the conviction to feel, right? Nehemiah had the conviction to feel, right? If you read on verse three, this is the response that the men of Judah gave to Nehemiah. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire, right? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. The report from the men of Judah, it, it's not good. Even though the remnant, uh, some of them have returned to Jerusalem, right? 70 years ago, leading with Zerubbabel, um, and they've been rebuilding some stuff, and the temple has been rebuilt with Ezra. Uh, the report is that still, it's, it's not great. Uh, the people are in great trouble. They're in shame. And specifically, they mentioned that the walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah's response uh, is quite shocking. If you think about it, if you just imagine it, it says that he, as soon as he heard the words, he sat down and he wept and mourned for days. And Nehemiah weeps, he mourns for days. When's the last time you wept and mourned for days? Right? What was it about? If we would have seen Nehemiah weeping and mourning for days, you would have thought like, oh, this is like really, really bad, whatever it is. Right, someone passed away. Right, there was a devastating loss. Right, that's his response when he hears about the state of God's people, when he hears about the state of God's city. Right, that, that's how convicted he is. That's how much he cares. But right, he mourns that much for the things of God because he's convicted enough to feel that deeply for the things of God. And again, it's not because he cares about you know, the physical wall, because right, there were nice walls or something. All of this is symbolic for, um, you know, God, uh, God's glory, God's redemption, right? God, what God's doing. The state of the city is a reflection that God has judged the people of Israel and they are still uh, distant from God, right? Uh, the state of the temple is a reflection of, you know, the, the people were meant to be um, the source of salvation for the world, but how can they be salvation for the world when they can't even take care of themselves, right? All of these things are wrapped up with the physical state of the people of God. You know, these are the things that would have broken the heart of God. And so therefore they break the heart of Nehemiah. And so he weeps uh, as God would have wept. He, he mourns for the people of God as God uh, would have mourned for them. Right? Do the things that break God's heart uh, break your heart? Do you weep and mourn for God's glory and God's people? Again, great movements and accomplishments for God happen because people are, are convicted enough to think 
about the things of God, but then go beyond that to, to feel uh, for the things of God, to be moved by the things of God, consumed in your, your mind, but, but also consumed in your heart. Uh, this week uh, on Thursday, uh, Uni and I, we had a Zoom call with like half a dozen um, church planting couples from the Geneva Push Network, right? They got us together and we were talking about uh, gospel convictions, right? So we talked about stuff like heaven and hell. Uh, we talked about the gospel and how the world needs the gospel. We talked about how life is short and so we shouldn't waste it. And we talked about a whole bunch of things. Um, and we we're talking about, you know, how we felt towards these things and how we responded. And I left that time personally convicted about my lack of conviction, right? If that makes sense. I was convicted that uh, I should and uh, I have to feel more about these things we were talking about, right? For let's take, for example, the topic of heaven and hell. That topic alone, you know, should uh, make me, I'm just talking about me, should make me weep and mourn, right? Heaven and hell. Well, when you really think about like, what, what that actually means and eternity, I, I should be miserable. You know, that there are people I know and love right now who haven't confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right? I, I should weep and mourn for days over that, you know, at times, at least once a year, right? You know, again, there are 23 million people in Australia who, who don't believe in Jesus, who haven't surrendered their lives and their sins to him. And heaven and hell is real. Right? The fact that I'm not moved by these things uh, significantly for significant amounts of time is not okay. Right? And I need to do something about that. Right? I should be convicted by these things. And whether it's me reading about it or thinking about it or praying about it or asking the Spirit to soften my heart or repenting for my apathy, my heart should break for the things uh, that God's heart breaks for. Just like that's where Nehemiah is. And that is where we should be. You know, why else are we planting a church? Why, why am I planning a church? If it's not for architecture, right? It's not so that we can gather into a nice building and decorate it and make it look nice. But it's not so that we can feel comfortable as Kingsway so we can get to know one another and have some barbecues and, you know, in our growth groups, you know, have fun. Even though that's a part of it, ultimately, we should be convicted in our hearts for the fact that there are people out there who don't know Jesus. But that should be a core part of our conviction. Right? That, that is what drives us out of our comfort zone. Right? Because we care about God. We care about his people. We care about his church. We care about his glory. Right? And that's my desire for myself. That's my desire for each of us. That we'll be convicted enough to think about the things of God. But not only that, that we'll be convicted enough to feel for the things of God. Right? Like Nehemiah is feeling at this moment. And the third thing, that we would not stop there, but then we would have conviction to act. You probably figured it out. I'm, I'm following the head, heart, hands thing that I've, I've talked about before. Information in our head, conviction in our hearts, leading to transformation in our hands. Or put it another way, we're talking about passionate theology, right? Not just knowing things, but to feel passionately about them and then we will act on them. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
Nehemiah is going to act in a bunch of different ways, and we're going to look at it more as we keep going through the series, especially next week. We'll, we'll look at it. Um, but I want to point out the first point of action, right? the first thing he does. What's it say? He says, it says he, he fasts and he prays. Right, verse 6, Nehemiah is going to go on to say he's praying day and night. Prayer is not just something Nehemiah does here. It's something that he's done before. It's something that he's going to keep doing through the book of Nehemiah. And it's significant that this is his knee-jerk reaction. As he hears this bad news, his first response, i got to do something. Right? I, I, I think, I feel, now I'm going to act. But the first thing he does is that he prays. Right? It's a reflection of his trust in God. Right, his faithfulness in God, his dependence on God, uh, it's a reflection of this truth, that Nehemiah knows that what he wants to do is something that he cannot accomplish by his own strength. Right? So he's got to go pray to God. Right? Rather than giving up on this great task of seeing the walls being built, right, which is tempting, he's going to push for it, but the only way it's going to happen is if, God is going to do it, right? And so that's why he prays, and that's why he's going to keep praying through the book of Nehemiah, right? If you remember the first sermon, right, we, we, I, I preached, or the first sharing I gave, right, at Kingsway, before we were Kingsway, we looked at the book of Acts, and the disciples, the first thing they did when Jesus sends them out as witnesses to the end, ends of the earth, the first thing they did was they prayed, right, just like Nehemiah. Right? And for us as well, you know, we want to see God do some great things in Kingsway. Right? We, our vision is we want to see the gospel revive our generation and beyond. And I think it's tempting to see that and be like, really? Like, is Kingsway going to make much of a difference? Are people actually going to be saved? Well, that's too hard. I'm going to give up. Right? That's one thing we can do. Give up. Right? But the other thing we can do is give it up right, to God in prayer. Right, to hold on to you know, that kind of lofty, uh, grand goal that feels beyond us and to still pursue it, but recognize that this is beyond us and to say, God, I need you to, to show up. Right? And we want God to work powerfully in King's Way. And the truth is, you know, we may not have all the answers. Right? We are very gifted and committed people, but still we are flawed people. Right? But we're pushing for God to do incredible things knowing that it is beyond us, and hopefully that will drive us to act. But in action, the first thing we need to do is pray, right? Because we need God to do that. And so if I close, the summary is, um, we looked at context. And just the storyline of you know, the whole Bible leading up to where Nehemiah is. Um, and in that kind of very low point of where Nehemiah is, uh, he finds conviction for God and for his people. He has conviction to think about the things of God. He has conviction to feel for the things of God. And then he has conviction to act. And that's really what we're going to see for the rest of the book. But the first thing he does when he acts is that he prays. And again, my encouragement to us is in our context, which is different from Nehemiah. Uh, but, you know, in some ways, very similar. The church in Sydney and Australia isn't really thriving. It's on the decline. Uh, being a Christian is harder. Um, and, and we're uh, kind of looked down upon and we called uh, names that we would find a conviction for the things of God, uh, convicted to think about these things, convicted to feel, and then convicted to act, uh, beginning with prayer. Um, and I want us to pray. And if there's one kind of application from 
uh, this uh, sermon in particular is I want us to be convicted to act in prayer. Uh, I want you to pray personally, right? Especially as we look at launch coming up so soon, we need to be, I don't know, hungry. We need to be hurried into prayer, right? Personally, right? In your own spare time, right? We as the launch team, if anything, uh, if we're doing anything, it's that we pray. Or pray for Australia, pray for Sydney, or pray for your friends, right? The state of the church right now and the state of the souls of, of the people you know. Think about the three C's, right? Those you can contact, those you can connect with, those you can convert, right? I want you to dust off that little you know, diagram that we made or, you know, make your own and just think about, you know, who are the, I think we said three people, right? Who, who can I contact? Or if I've contacted them, who can I connect with? Right? And really get on top of that because we're going to launch very soon. I right? pray for Kingsway. Right, that we as a church, uh, we as leadership, uh, we as people serving in different ministries uh, might be convicted and be running for the right purposes of God and that we might love the king and live his way. Right? Let's just pray personally. But I think we should pray corporately. Um, it's been a while since facts has started and you know, I want us to get together to pray again. And so I'm thinking about you know, some options um, and I'll come back to us soon. But I'm thinking if we prayed um, every fortnight, uh, we'd have about four opportunities to gather together and pray, you know, on Zoom or something like that. And so I'm going to do that. Um, I'll post it up on the Facebook uh, chat, um, I mean, Facebook page. Um, and if you're available, uh, it'd be great for us to, to pray as, as a church, especially as we lead up to launch. Um, yeah, pray because we are convicted. Okay. And so these are the questions I want to encourage you to talk about. You can go off these or you can kind of um, go off your own thoughts and questions. Where is the bottleneck in your conviction for the things of God, right? Is it your head, your heart or hands, right? And so that's, that's just saying, you know, where does conviction stop? Is it because you don't think about the things of God, the scriptures, the Bible, the world, salvation, heaven, hell, etc.? Or is it that you think about it and you talk about it, but you just don't, don't feel it? Or is it that you, you do feel it and you feel conviction at times and, and passion, but you don't end up doing much about it, right? So where's the bottleneck? And question two is, what, do you, what is one thing you want to be more convicted about and then to share about it? And so maybe it's conviction for the salvation of my friends. Uh, maybe it's conviction for, you know, the, um, I don't know, heaven and hell. Maybe it's conviction for this church, Kingsway. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe you can share about it.